I would love for shuls to set aside resources for the rabbis to be in therapy. Hmm. All rabbis should be in therapy. When I say in therapy, I don't necessarily mean that rabbis are, you know, struggling with uh, issues of anxiety and depression and, and need marriage counseling. That may be. They're not immune either to that. Of course, of course. I'm, I'm just qualifying my statement. All rabbis need therapy. You know, some people may not understand what I mean by that. All rabbis need therapy in the sense that the nature of the job is such that it is it is incredibly in, intensive. So many different types of relationships, so many issues and emotions that are constantly coming the rabbi's way. He needs to be able to sort of process that properly. And in supervision, maybe that's a better way to call it than therapy, but I, I think it's really one of the same. A rabbi will be able to talk about these things. You know, I'm having a really challenging time with, with you know, a case that's come my way. I'm not quite sure how to handle it. You know, a supervisor slash rabbi who can function in, in, in such a way will be able to say to someone, well, you're in way over your head. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. I frequently alluded to the problems that arise when rabbis mistakenly don't stay in their own lane and end up advising people in areas that require more than the pastoral counseling they might have learned when studying for smicha. In fact, I'm often concerned about the intersection between rabbinic counseling and psychotherapy and how the professional and the congregant or client knows which is required in any given situation and the answers are not always so clear-cut. For that reason, I was honored to speak to Rabbi Larry Rothwax, a well-regarded congregational rabbi, a licensed social worker, and the director of professional rabbinics at Reitz at Yeshiva University, to discuss many of the issues that arise from this potential conflict. We discussed what mental health issues are most prevalent in the Orthodox world, the specific differences between rabbinic counseling and therapy, how to navigate conflicts that arise between a person's role as a rabbi and a therapist, the problems that result from rabbis and therapists getting involved in areas in which they are not trained, how a person should know when what is being discussed is above his pay grade, what a therapist committed to Jewish law should do when a therapeutic response to a problem may differ from what halacha would prescribe, and more. We'll get to the interview momentarily. First, please share this podcast, rate The Orthodox Conundrum, and write a review on Apple Podcasts, and let us know what you think on the Orthodox Conundrum discussion group on Facebook. Check out jewishcoffeehouse.com for The Orthodox Conundrum and other great podcasts, and remember to subscribe to them on your favorite podcast provider. Thank you to all of our Patreon subscribers who have access to bonus Jewish Coffeehouse podcasts, merch, and more. Join the Jewish Coffeehouse team on Patreon. The link is in the description of this podcast. Finally, it's abundantly clear that the market for podcasts is growing every day, and it's going to keep getting bigger. You probably noticed that almost everyone has a podcast these days, and with good reason. It's become basically the best and most efficient way to reach whatever audience you choose. But that also means that if you want to develop a podcast, you need to make sure that it's done right so that your podcast can stand out from the crowd. If you want to share your ideas with the world at large, or you have a growing business that's looking for a great new marketing tool, or you have an organization that's looking to reach hundreds or thousands of captivated listeners, you should have a high-quality podcast. Contact me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jchpodcasts.com to learn how we can help you make a high-quality, effective, and entertaining podcast. Rabbi Larry Rothwax, a licensed social worker, has served as rabbi at Congregation Beth Aaron in Teaneck, New Jersey, since August 2002. Rabbi Rothwax is a graduate of Yeshiva College, the Azraeli School of Jewish Education, and the Wurzweiler School of Social Work, and received his smicha from the Rabbi Isaac Elchanan Theological Seminary. From 1998 through 2016, Rabbi Rothwax taught Talmud at Yeshiva University High School for Boys and the Rosenbaum Yeshiva of North Jersey, and he currently serves as head rabbi of Camp Morasha. In April 2016, he was appointed Director of Professional Rabbinics at Reitz at Yeshiva University. Rabbi Rothwax and his wife, Chaviva, who teaches special education at the Sinai schools, are the proud parents of five children and four grandchildren. Rabbi Larry Rothwax, thank you very much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum Podcast. Thank you very much, Rabbi Khan. Really a pleasure to be here. We're going to be speaking about rabbinic counseling, therapy, and some other issues that rabbis need to know about. In fact, all of us, anyone who has a rabbi needs to know about. 
But let's open up Rabbi Rothwax by asking about certain mental health issues that seem particularly acute in the Orthodox world. Are there specific problems that are perhaps more prone to Orthodox people than they would be otherwise? I appreciate the question. So I, I would say that in, in terms of prevalence, uh, it's very difficult to say. Uh, generally, it's not wise to draw conclusions from anecdotal observations and, and you know, with lack of evidence. As a general rule, and this is something that I've observed and heard from, you know, some of uh, my mental health mentors is whatever is out there is in here as well. So topics that were once very taboo to discuss within our community are now discussed uh, very openly and routinely in, in all segments along the, I, I think, the entire spectrum of the community, some more than less. And I know that's something you touch upon a lot, you know, in your discussions, whether it's addiction and domestic abuse and suicide, you know, topics that are not just taboo, but frankly, very painful to talk about. And particularly as it relates to our community, uh, you know, these are these are topics that we didn't really talk about a generation ago. And now and now we do. Uh, the only re- research based data that I'm aware of uh, that yielded any definitive conclusions in this regard was uh, a recent study that I, I think you may have actually featured here, uh, almost 20 high schools that were involved in a, a multi-year uh, study uh, Rabbi Harkstark and Dr. Schwartz uh, from SER were involved in that. Yes, uh, we did. Have correct them that you that. had them on this on the show. We discussed it. Yes, yeah, because yeah, I, I had several conversations with them personally, so I don't remember exactly wh- where I heard what. But uh, the the two issues that they identified where there seemed to be higher prevalence within our community, as you may recall, was alcohol use and binging among teens and sports betting. And again, it should be noted that this study was limited to a very specific population uh, within the broader Jewish community. So that's in terms of prevalence. Well, can I ask you just a question about that? Because those seem to be more behaviors rather than inherent mental health issues, unless I'm mischaracterizing it. That is correct. Although I think both of those, uh, first of all, you know, they may be they may be manifestations of you know of mental health issues. You know, addictions uh, may in fact just sort of start as as behaviors that just may be, you know, unhealthy. Uh, but very often, you know, these maladaptive behaviors can sort of develop as being, you know, more more pathological. I think when we speak about mental health issues in general, I think we sometimes confuse, as you just pointed out, you know, issues in which we struggle as a community in terms of certain social trends, uh, as opposed to things that are more more pathological. But I would say that, you know, if, if you want to talk about, you know, specifically mental health issues, mental health disorders, to be more precise, uh, again, I, I cannot comment at all on on prevalence uh, compared to the general population. Genetics play a role over here, and of course, the the, the Orthodox Jewish community we have our own unique set of of genes, and we know how it certainly you know plays out in in other areas. Anxiety and the and depression, without without a doubt, there is a significant prevalence, particularly among teenagers. There is a lot, again, like I said, a lot of anecdotal evidence of this. Uh, I can only tell you, as forget as a mental health professional, just as a rabbi who has been you know, involved in making mental health referrals over 20 years, uh, over the past uh, couple of years, for the first part of my time in my entire career, I sometimes feel like I'm, I'm scraping, you know, the the bottom of the barrel. I am, I'm trying really hard to reach out to new people and to meet and introduce myself to new mental health professionals and become comfortable with them for the purpose of referral. But it, 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 it's, you know, there, there's a tremendous demand. Uh, and very often, again, it is to address issues of anxiety, depression, eating disorders, uh, there's many couples that need marriage counseling, uh, various interventions of that sort. So this is what I'm seeing. Okay. That leads us into the issue of rabbinic counseling and mental health counseling and therapy. You are someone who is both a uh, practicing rabbi as well as someone who is a social worker who is a practicing therapist. What are some of the similarities and differences, as you see it, Rabbi Rothwax, between rabbinic counseling and mental health counseling? And that will be sort of an opening question. We can take it from there. Yeah, I appreciate that. So um, this is actually something I've I've thought about a lot over the past, I would say, five years more than I did, you know, during the first uh, half of my rabbinic career, and that is primarily because, as you as you as you pointed out, I I, I pivoted several years ago, uh, not uh, in any way whatsoever as an attempt to to leave the rabbinate where I'm, because I'm very you know satisfied and fulfilled uh, personally and professionally, uh, but uh, I guess to sort of expand my professional horizons and really to commit myself more passionately to something that you know that I find very meaningful. And it has really forced me to think about this in a very intentional sort of way. Until relatively recently, if I would be speaking with somebody, meeting with someone, counseling, uh, I, I wouldn't have to stop from and ask myself, who, you know, who's speaking right now? What, you know, what hat am I wearing? What is my role? It would be very clear. Um, and now I really do need to stop myself and to think. So I, I, I think that I would 
I would say, if we wanted to sort of break down the difference between uh, rabbinic counseling as opposed to, uh, let's sort of call it psychotherapy, mental health counseling, I think there, there are three different areas that we should talk about. The first is sort of the different roles between a rabbi and a therapist, the relationship, uh, personal and professional relationship between the rabbi and the therapist and the client or the, the congregant, if you will, uh, in terms of the skills and the process of, of counseling. So if it's okay, let's, you know, let's, let's just start first with, with roles. So Please do. what is a rabbinic role? I mean, typically rabbis, you know, serve as educators, as advisors, as hopefully people who can guide individuals uh, who are looking for, you know, guidance, direction, uh, support. Rabbis obviously are either involved directly in Psach or facilitating uh, that and making connections for those who require halachic guidance. Uh, rabbis are hopefully motivators of change. Uh, they try to inspire uh, their community uh, and individuals within their community to become the better versions of themselves. So that, that that's sort of how we, I would describe. Obviously, there are many other components to the life of a rabbi, but that's like a sort of... The that's a nice role. overview, I think. Okay. So what, what what is a therapist? So it's a very different type of role. It's it's I would say a lot more professional. It, it's a there's a contracted arrangement, very clear definitions, and at least what there should be mutual expectations that are that should be discussed very explicitly from the outset. Uh, therapist is a diagnostician. Now some are going to be more skilled than others, but must at least attempt uh, to sort of understand what is the underlying issue over here. A therapist will develop a treatment plan. And the therapeutic process, the relationship has very clear definitions, both in terms of the starting point as well as the, the sort of the termination. So before getting into, again, anything having to do with process and skills and the relationship, I just see them as being very different roles. So you can see how a lot of people say, yeah, you know, what's the difference? Rabbi and therapist is all the same thing. The way I've outlined it over here, well, of course, there's a lot of overlap. They're very, very different roles professionally. I'd like to first talk about relationship and skills before we get back to it, but I don't want to leave this without mentioning that we do need to talk about when those roles do seem to overlap, the various problems that can arise both for the rabbi slash therapist or for the patient slash congregant. Absolutely. So just, we will talk about that soon. Okay. Listen, I've listened to you before, Abikhan, so I know you'll be coming back to me. <laughs> okay. Okay, let's so, move on to relationship now. Okay, so relationships. A rabbi's relationship with, uh, again, uh, be it a, a, a student a congregant, uh, the Balabatim in general. So it is it is more personal. It is not strictly professional. Uh, of course, there are boundaries. There need to be boundaries. Uh, we always need to have boundaries in life with anyone we interact with, even you know members of our own family. But there are different types of boundaries. Relationships with rabbis and the congregants include all members of their family, uh, often multi-generational. You know, if I have the opportunity to become close with members of my shul, hopefully I get to know their children, uh, their grandchildren, their grandparents, their uncles, their aunts over time. You know, you really get to know a lot about th that individual, their family system, and interact rather comfortably uh, with all of them. Uh, a rabbi will spend time in, in the home of his balabatim, and the balabatim will, will come into his home from time to time. I mean, another thing I would say, just in terms of the, you know, the, the term that I think we, we would use both in rabbinic counseling and mental health counseling is self-disclosure. It's very important for rabbis and therapists to establish very clear guidelines for themselves. Um, and I believe that there are a spectrum of possibilities and there are different schools of thought. So I'm not really interested right now in telling you, uh, unless you want to know how I feel about that issue. But I, I, I do think it's fair to say, and we would all have to agree, that it is not only acceptable and appropriate, I think it's necessary for rabbis to feel comfortable disclosing uh, some aspects of their personal life. That there's simply no way to hide it. You know, if, if a rabbi is married, does he have children? If so, how many? Do they live in the community? You know, what are some of the you know, struggles that the rabbi has personally. Uh, what kind of house does the rabbi live in? You know, a therapist is generally speaking, really not supposed to share this information unless he or she believes that it is helpful to therapeutic process. And even though there are very clear guidelines. So it, the relationship between a therapist and a client should be strictly professional. Now, just to state the obvious, it could be a very intimate relationship. You know, a therapist is going to hopefully make the client very comfortable being vulnerable and open. There's going to be a lot of probing, perhaps a lot more so than when a rabbi but at the end of the day, the relationship is one which is professional. And there are it also sounds like it's sort of a one-way probing. In Correct. other words, it's not a friendship. It's not a relationship in the classic sense. One person is, to put it bluntly, in charge. And the other person is the, uh, I don't want to say the object of the therapy. Right, but... Certainly not. And this is where, like I said, unless you want to talk about it, because it's something I think about quite a lot. I, I, there are different schools of thought. And I actually do believe that 
healthy degrees of self-disclosure are appropriate for therapists. But I agree with you that it has to be for the purpose of therapy. It cannot be the rabbi fulfilling some sort of need or to satisfy, satisfy the, the curiosity of the, of the client. Uh, it goes without saying, and, I, and there may be exceptions to this, but a therapist would not visit a client in his or her home. Uh, again, I, I'm, there are exceptions. Irving Yalom, who's a you know, is a, a noted uh, psychiatrist who's written incredible books on the the art of psychotherapy. I, I believe I, I've read that he says that over the years he didn't sometimes meet clients in their homes. But I think that's very unconventional. I don't know that that's really typical. Very different types of boundaries. And going back to family for a second, the client is going to share, hopefully, you know, what's going on in his or her family with the therapist, but the therapist is not going to be interacting with the members of the family. Uh, in fact, I mean, again, this is not a hypothetical question. If I'm seeing somebody in private counseling and I bump into a family member of theirs and they say, oh, thank you so much for all of the you know help and support you're giving my wife, my husband, my husband, my, my daughter, my son, I'm not really supposed to even acknowledge that I know what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's, it's a very, very different type of relationship. Once more, we're going to have to get back to that only because it sounds like this can really create a real problem for a rabbi who is also a therapist or perhaps in a different way of putting it for a rabbi who thinks he's a therapist, who is acting as a therapist, even though he may not be qualified to act as a therapist. Once again, we'll get back to that too. Let's now talk about the third element you mentioned, the skills. Fine. So as far as the skills in the process, so listen, obviously, and here's where I think there's a very clear overlap between these two areas of of professional work. And I think this is where there's a lot of confusion for people because people say, oh, rabbi, therapist, it's all the same. So where are the similarities? You know, rabbis and therapists need to be skilled in the area of active listening. They need to be able to sort of validate the experience, the emotional uh, turmoil, distress, uh, feelings of whoever it is that they're interacting with. Uh, rabbis have to learn about uh, what's called transference and countertransference, which are uh, very, very important within the realm of psychotherapy. Uh, I, I think equally important within rabbinic counseling. And just without getting into, again, a, a lengthy discussion, transference is when a client or or a congregant brings their own uh, experiences, particularly when it comes to certain relationships, into this professional relationship, how that impacts uh, whatever it is that's going on in this room. So what it is that we are talking about, countertransference is when the therapist or the rabbi you know, is bringing their own, if you'll forgive me, their own stuff. Now, this is not necessarily a problem. You just need to be aware of it and understand what's happening. It can actually facilitate sometimes some very productive uh, progress. But there are but there's some very clear differences. So rabbis give advice. That's what we're supposed to do. We should be thoughtful about it. Uh, I will not give somebody advice in an area that I don't feel that I'm qualified. If somebody would ask me for business advice, uh, I, would t- I would tell them you do not want to ask me. Uh, and And I wouldn't, I wouldn't dare to give somebody advice in that area, even if they say, listen, I know, I know that you're, you know, this is not your area of expertise, but I'm just curious as a rabbi, what would you say? So I I, I would push back. That being said, there are many areas in which I would comfortably give advice. And if somebody says to me, what do you think I should do as a rabbi? I'm I'm, I'm comfortable having that conversation. Um, As a rabbi, I'm not going to separate my personal values and beliefs from the conversation that we're having. It's self-evident that rabbis represent Torah and halacha, and that's going to inform the guidance that I'm going to give. I, I, again, I, what I say and how I guide this person it has to be done with sensitivity and have to be sensible about it. But still, it goes without saying, you're speaking to me as a as a rabbi. I'll tell you very interestingly, when I see clients in my office and I'm surrounded by Sfarim, I have to sometimes remind them, don't look at the books. What do you mean? I mean, I'm, I'm not speaking to you right now as a rabbi. You know, that's not- Oh, when you're acting as a therapist, in other words. As a therapist, exactly. You know, it, you know and much has been- said and spoken about, you know, the, the setting of a, either a rabbi's office or a therapist's office and sort of how it makes people feel. But some people may feel very comforted by seeing all of the, you know, Torah books around me uh, to the extent that that in any way whatsoever reflects who I am, my values. I'm I'm not going to comment on that. But if that's the impression that they have, it's very careful to remind them periodically throughout the process that, yes, I am a rabbi. I'm wearing a yarmulke. I'm a, I'm a from Jew. You know who I am. But that's that's not who I am right now. Or that's not the voice that's speaking to you. Therapists don't give advice. At least they shouldn't. Therapists have to help their clients work through whatever sort of issues that they're dealing with, help them process, understand the different options. Uh, but a responsible therapist is not going to tell a person what to do. Uh, will not tell a person, you know, I really think that you should leave this job or that you should leave this marriage or commit to this relationship, whatever the case may be. And a therapist has to try to separate their own personal values and beliefs, or at least acknowledge that they may have certain personal biases. You know, there's a concept of, in therapy is you know, cultural competence. 
know, to be an effective therapist, I really need to understand the experience of this individual and try to separate my own personal, religious, spiritual, ideological biases. Rabbis are not supposed to do that. I don't, I don't think I don't I didn't think our Balabatim want us to do that, right? They want us to. They're coming to us as rabbis. So in terms of the, the process, I, I think it's, you know, it's very, no, it goes without saying, I didn't even say, uh, rabbis are, and, and you've mentioned this several times, well, I'm sure you're going to get to this, rabbis are not really skilled to really engage in, in what we'll call psychotherapeutic treatment. So they're not really skilled, trained to be able to do that. They're not licensed to do that. And so I'm not even, I'm not even going there. I'm just trying to point out some of the things that uh, there are. Maybe not as obvious. There are other differences as well. I just, I don't want, I don't know how long you want me to talk in here. So <laughs> you can talk as long as you can. This is wonderful. I'm really enjoying this. Okay, fine. I was just say there are some other differences. When you think about the time and let's say location of a pastoral session as opposed to a counseling one, uh, I'm not going to ask you, Rabbi Khan, it's not my business. You know, if you would see a therapist or a rabbi, where would you meet them? But I will tell you, by and large, generally speaking, a meeting between a client and a therapist happens at a scheduled time in a very specific place. And it is certainly not happening in public. Uh, but it should, you know, it's it's happening, again, in a very professional setting. Rabbis know that sometimes some of the most dynamic pastoral moments occur, you know, during a kiddush, literally with somebody holding a bowl of chalent in their hand. Now, again, it's not necessarily the most conducive or productive time to have a deep conversation with a That's interesting. Of, that really is true? That, absolutely. Absolutely. Wow. I mean, I, mean, you know, there are, there I would are, not have anticipated that. I would think that's downtime. That's when you can schmooze. You talk about something unimportant. Well, again, I agree with you, a, a, meaning in the sense that the Kiddush is not an ideal time to talk about this, but there are people who will only speak to the rabbi about certain types of issues um, as they're standing in the Kiddush. You know, in therapy, there's something known as the, the doorknob comments. You know, when somebody's on the way out and they have their hand on the doorknob, they'll say, oh, by the way, and then drop some bombshell comment. I have been approached at a, at a, at a, at a kiddush, and somebody tells me, "I just want to let you know, by the way, I think I'm I think I'm getting a divorce, and I'm going to tell my wife tonight." Or, um, I was just diagnosed with a you know the terrible a terrible illness, and I I just wanted to let you know. Or I think your speech was really horrible today, and it's actually been horrible for the last you know six months, and you know, and and you know, obviously, I'm the first thing I'm thinking, why why would you, why would you mention this to me now and here? I mean, there are people standing, but there's probably a good reason as to why that person oh, is. Yeah. This would not happen with the therapist unless, I suppose, if somebody bumps into the therapist in, in the kiddush room, <laughs> I suppose that's possible, but otherwise not. Um, <laughs> rabbis need to be available in times of crisis. Um, very different expectations. I mean, I leave my phone on in the middle of the night, as all rabbis do. Uh, thankfully, I think for the most part, people do not abuse that. Uh, but I would think, you know, let, let's let's put it this way. And, and unfortunately, you know, there, I, I can think of numerous instances. If, if my phone rings at three o'clock in the morning, I know I know it's not good. I know it's not good. Mm. A therapist's phone will not ring at three o'clock in the morning. He'll say, if this is an emergency, call 911. Right. Imagine if your rabbi put that on his uh, voicemail, if it's an emergency, call 911. <laughs> He's probably looking for another job. Um, right. So, you know, just availability. I'll tell you something else. You know, you can choose your therapist. You can't quite as easily choose your rabbi. Now, again, I know- say l'charav? Well, you can to a certain extent. I was just going to say, you know, you're in Ramah Shemesh, and it's a little different than Tina where I live. Um, but- you know, a therapist can... Maybe not that different. I don't know. Maybe not. Okay. That's, maybe that'll be another conversation. A, a therapist can certainly recommend, um, if let's say there's a client who's having difficulty connecting, making progress. So a responsible therapist would actually say, listen, I, I, I think I'm going to, I think it would be best for me to refer you to someone else. I have a colleague who I think is going to be, you know, more equipped, more experienced uh, to help you, you know, along this journey. It's not quite as simple for a rabbi typically to do that. If a rabbi feels that Somebody is seeking his his, his assistance. He's not really able to support him. Say, you know what, you know, there's, there's a rabbi, you know, down, you know, down the block. You know, I, th I I think you should speak to him. Now again, there may be exceptions to that rule, and it may depend on the nature of the relationship and what exactly the issue is. Obviously, there are rabbis with different areas of expertise, but it, it, it's this is sort of an assumption that we have a relationship, and therefore we we need to we need to make this work. There's a concept of a dual relationship. You know, in therapy, you are not. It, it's considered unethical. Um, and maybe, you know, in certain cases, it could be, you know, I imagine somebody's license could perhaps be revoked if they're going to uh, engage in psychotherapeutic treatment of individuals who they have other relationships with. Now, again, not all relationships are the same. But we all know that even a physician will typically not treat members of their own family. For a rabbi, it's very complicated. Can you, can you imagine? And yes, this is hypothetical. I know I'm on the record here. But imagine I have a next door neighbor and our daughter's are best friends. And he happens to be the shul president. And my contract is up for renewal and he's experiencing crisis within his marriage. And he comes to me for help. 
a therapist would recuse himself immediately from such situations saying like I, you know i just i just can't get involved in this but you as a rabbi you can't do that what am i supposed to say i can't help you go ask somebody else but we're so you know you know i i am i am nechaz basvach i am i'm literally i'm caught up in this situation on so many levels and a rabbi can't simply walk away from that and say well you know we're too close and so therefore i'm going to have to now again the answer is he may actually have to he but 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 it's just he just it's a lot more complicated if he can't simply say i can't help you you can't you know you have to go somewhere else and a therapist yeah. can do that there's so much to consider here. I just want to say, Mamash Derek Agav, that when you talk about a rabbi leaving his phone on 24 hours a day, I once saw a New Yorker cartoon. I wish I had saved it. It showed a firm-looking guy, probably a rabbi, walking down the street with a cell phone pressed to his ear, talking to a client or somebody, saying, and remember, if you need anything, I'm available 24-6. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Which I respect. <laughs> rabbis are available 24-7, but only 24-6 by phone. That, right, that, is, exactly. that is correct. So we do work on Shabbos as well, as you know. That's true. Now, Rabbi Rothwax, I want to ask you, balancing role, relationship, process, it's very easy in principle, the way you laid it out right now, as you obviously know, to say the role of a therapist is X, the role of a rabbi is Y. The same thing with the nature of a relationship, the same thing with the process and skills that they utilize. In practice, though, if someone were to come to you, and I don't mean you specifically, but anybody who acts both as a rabbi and a therapist in different contexts, they may not say, I'm speaking to you as my rabbi or I'm speaking to you as a therapist. They might just say, I'm talking to Rabbi Rothwax. And it's unclear what they mean, whether they're looking for one role or the other. So how do you figure that out? How do you balance those two roles in your own life? Right. So just to be clear, are you asking specifically about a rabbi that is also a licensed therapist? Or yes. You are. Okay. So it, again, like I said before, this is something I, I, I've been thinking about quite a lot over the past several years. Um, and I will be very uh, explicit and direct with the individual that I'm interacting with uh, in order to make sure that we're on the same page. To be clear, for, for the reason that I just mentioned earlier, although I didn't really state it in this context, Based on the concept of dual relationships, I cannot and I will not interact with any of my congregants as a therapist. And I will actually let them know. Uh, I don't, to, to be honest with you, there have not been too many in instances where somebody has, has even attempted to, to seek my service in that regard, either because they think I'm, I'm sufficiently uh, underqualified or, or maybe they, they just don't, that's not what they're looking for. Whatever the case is. Or perhaps I, they I implicitly have... understand the difference. And the importance that, of different that, roles. It is certainly it is certainly possible. And again, I'm 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 sort of I'm fresh out in this as as a licensed therapist over the last couple of years. So and and again, whatever clients I'm seeing, it's on a very very limited basis. So it's not as if you know everybody knows. Oh, you know, if you're looking for counseling, go to Rabbi Rothwigs. Okay. All that being said, I think that uh, it needs to be uh, made very clear, and people need to know exactly what my role is. I will tell you that I have had clients who have tried to double dip a little bit. Um, and I don't mean it in the sense that they're trying to sort of take advantage, monopolize my time, or I'll save them a phone call. But again, not a hypothetical question. If you're dealing with a couple that is, you know, that is experiencing turmoil within the marriage, and one of the questions that they have, this is not necessarily the matter that they're struggling with, is uh, as regarding family planning. So there are halachic issues involved, and there are questions that they would want to have with their rabbi. So they may say, well, listen, you know, in your opinion as a rabbi, in your halachic opinion, you know, should we be, you know, at this time, you know, continue to build our family? You know, for me, there's like a red light in my head. You know, I'll have to, I'll have to spell it out for them. And say, listen, because of my role in this conversation, because of, you know, what, what, what I'm bringing to this conversation right now, and because, because of, you know, the, the nature of this relationship and why you've retained my services, um, I, I am not going to have a conversation with you, you know, on a, on a halachic level. I'll provide you with all the information I can so that you can then go to your rabbi and discuss this with him. And I'm happy to talk, talk to him, sort of therapist to rabbi, just as I've had conversations with therapists as rabbi to therapist, mm -hmm. if that makes any sense. No, I understand. Actually, I want to take that a little further. What do you do in a case, maybe that's not a good example, maybe it is a good example, but when your role as a therapist actually comes at loggerheads with your role as a rabbi, even if they're coming to you as a therapist, let's assume a couple comes to you as a therapist, and in your professional opinion, as a rabbi, you would say you would never, for example, and I don't know... This is just a random example. You would not give them a heter license to put off pregnancy as a rabbi. Let's say that were the case. But as a therapist, when they're talking about it with you, it could be that you can't tell them that. 
Right. So now you have a halachic opinion, which you believe is actually a requirement according to Jewish law. And as a therapist, you have to keep your mouth shut vis-a-vis that issue. How do you manage that? Yeah. So you're not going to like my answer. My answer is I'm not really going to answer that question. I will. Here's what I'll do. I'll say that anyone in, in this type of position needs to be mindful of this and needs to have a a, a system, an approach. Uh, one thing that I, I'd, I'd love to talk about we haven't mentioned yet is the concept of a supervisor. Actually, I'll, I'll, I'll pause for a moment. I'll come back to your question. Therapists are required in their training process to have supervision which is basically therapy for the therapist. That's really what it is. People don't always understand that. Um, you know, you think it's just somebody that you can go to to talk over, talk about, you know, your your various clients in your case, which is true as well. But really it's about the therapist processing all that's going on for him or her. Hmm. Um, it's, it's, it's therapist for the therapy. Uh, Rabbi Khan, it, it is, for myself personally, it has been w- one of the most greatest areas of fulfillment in my life over the past uh, couple of years is just being able to access, you know, just be, to re-engage with a therapist. Now, I'm, I'm I'm paying a supervisor. So it's not as if, it's not like a free bonus that comes along, but it's not necessarily something that I would have prioritized as a rabbi, you know, like everybody else, you know, is this something I really need? Rabbis do not have, uh, structurally, any sort of obligation to have supervision. But rabbis should have, and I do believe most rabbis do, I can't say all do, uh, that would be naive, but I think most rabbis do have those that they can turn to when they are confronting uh, ethical issues, challenges, conflicts of sorts. So just to go back to your question, you know, that 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 could be a real challenge. And I think the rabbi needs to, you know, know how he handles that situation. So I am aware of, of very, very committed from therapists who completely leave their Yiddish guide at the door when they come into the room. I'm on, I'm on all these listservs and I see, you know, some of the conversations going on. And I, I, you know, I, I say without judgment, it's actually incredible to see the degree to which people can sort of bifurcate their lives in such a way. And I also see the other extreme. I'm not convinced that either one is is the right approach. I think it's a, it's a, it's it requires nuance. But I do think that you need to be always straightforward and honest with the person that is sitting in front of you, and let them know. Say, listen, this is re- this is really here. I'm 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 challenged with this, and here's why. And I just want to. I, I just have to put it out there. I just let, need to let you know that I'm feeling inside of myself that I cannot be impartial regarding this question, this issue. And letting your client know that is it's just it's the right thing to do. And I don't, I don't think I don't think anybody would blame the therapist or the rabbi for acknowledging their you know inherent biases. That makes a lot of sense. I, I, I actually like that answer very much, even though you said I wouldn't like the answer. <laughs> I want to ask you about the role that Jewish thought plays in therapy. What I mean by that is that even though obviously in terms of the specific roles and relationships and skills, you're talking about different jobs here, at the same time, as human beings, our education is a massive information and experiences that work together. Are there any ways, Rabbi Rothwax, in your own life, you've seen that Jewish thought or Jewish ideas have had a role to play specifically in therapy? I don't mean in specific therapeutic methods or anything else per se, but just in terms of informing the way that you look at the world, even though you're not bringing Jewish law to bear in talking to a patient or to a client, at the same time, I would assume that Jewish thought has impacted the way you see your role in some way. Yeah. So the answer is absolutely. Uh, there is there is a, a really, it's, it seems to me it's like a new and growing genre of Jewish literature uh, that's coming out of Israel and the United States, uh, which is really highlighting and showcasing the interconnectivity between Jewish tradition uh, Torah thought, hashkafa, halacha, and mental health issues. Uh, and it's really exciting for a whole variety of reasons. But I, I think, you know, for one of the reasons is there is a very, I mean, for myself personally, again, as a, as a, as a rabbi and as a, you know, as a, as a Torah-believing Jew, there's something very satisfying about being able to uh, trace and identify so many of the, some very, very sophisticated ideas that we are studying and learning about right now, all the way back to, to the Torah itself. I mean, right now in Sefer Barashas, Barashas say. Uh, I spoke about, uh, and again, I don't intentionally do this. It's not like now this is my topic of choice, but it, it was it was a it was a topic which I wasn't explicit about the fact that I was trying to bring my mental health uh, counseling experiences into my drusha and vice versa. But there was such rich chomer just talking about Yaakov's relationship with his father, um, as opposed to Esav's relationship with the father, and how the two of them interacted one with another, and and and, and Rachel and Leah, and just talking about you know the family system. Uh, in a way that's, you know, I try to be reverent um, and mindful of the fact that there's a limit as to how much we can bring into the psukim. 
But at the same time, it's all there. Several generations ago, in the beginning of the, the Muslim movement, there were Bali Muslim who studied psychology. And I think at the time, uh, they were very concerned because they saw a lot of kafira, you know, particularly in the writings of Freud. I don't sense that discomfort quite as much anymore. Uh, I think that uh, the, the mental health world in general has been able to sort of identify, you know, some of the some of the ideas of Freud that seems seem to really sort of resonate and help inform and guide psychotherapists in the work. And many of the methods that are used today, which are, tend to be a little more behavioral approaches, even again, if they're interwoven with psychoanalysis, they, they're, they're not, they don't smell, you'll forgive me, quite as kfiridic as as uh, as some of these uh-huh. other. Like Revolva writes in the state for Ali Shur, and he doesn't name Freud uh, or any psychologist, but it's very clear to me that he was he was speaking out against um, the fact that there were people who were saying that uh, people are not really bali bechira, that we can't really make choices in life, that we are what we are, we're basically products of of nature. He was he he said that this was the kafir of our generation, but I don't think therapists are saying that today. I don't think they believe that at all. It's all about you know self determination and right. you, you you know so. But there's there's a lot of interconnectivity, and I think it's actually for me it's 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 very exciting. And by the way, you're correct that I don't bring I'm not going to turn a therapy session into a sheer. I'm mindful of that. People are not paying me for that. They can get it free online. But I sometimes can't resist, you know, especially obviously dealing with a firm client to go ahead and to cite a pasuk or a reference from something in davening. And it gives people tremendous, tremendous chizik in the moment. They, when they see that, that nexus, it, 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 it's, it's truly inspiring to people. They, 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 they realize, you know, the relevance of all of this in a way that I think people find, you know, really inspiring. I remember years ago, my wife and I were going to parenting classes that was based on an Adlerian approach. Adler's approach to uh, parenting, uh-huh. whatever. I, I'm not an expert. I'm just telling you what they told me. It was very, very helpful for us. And at the time, one of the things that I really noticed myself was when discussing consequences rather than punishment, how much in line it was with the Nefesh Shachayim and various other thinkers like that. So I definitely understand that idea uh-huh. of we're not actively bringing in the Nefesh Shachayim, but when it resonates, you say, oh, the Nefesh Shachayim anticipated something that was later articulated by people in the psychiatric community, the psychological community. There's a the series on parenting by by a, a, a therapist down in Los Angeles. Her name is Wendy Mogul. The first one is I think the blessing of a B minus, the blessing a blessing of a skin knee, the blessing of a B minus. It's a wonderful series. I highly recommend it to any parents or grandparents out there that are interested in just very wholesome, thoughtful, um, I think very very practical parenting tips. Uh, to my knowledge, she's not, not not a from woman. I don't know. Not that's particularly relevant, but she does bring Torah sources into her writing. I think she's great at it. Like it, interesting. It, it, it is. It is not a safer, which I would recommend. It's Chomel Drush, but there is a lot of Chomel Drush in there. I mean, she's re- really, you know, she's she's primarily a psychotherapist, but she's identifies as a Jew, as a traditional Jew, and and the connections that she makes, I think, are extremely insightful. Uh, and you know, some you know, real opportunities over there for you know, really interdisciplinary learning. That's yeah. nice. Okay, so now we're going to get into some of the other issues that I mentioned at the beginning that I'd like to talk about. Mm-hmm. Once again, citing your idea of different roles, different relationships, different processes and skills. Maybe before I even mention the next question, I'd like to make an observation and see what you have to say about this. Because it seems to me that too often rabbis might tend, I don't mean all rabbis, obviously, but it's a problem that occurs too often, The rabbis might answer questions that they may not be qualified to answer. In other words, someone went to rabbinical school, someone went to yeshiva, and he can he can paskin in various areas or discuss certain areas of Jewish thought. And because of that, I have found that at times, rabbis perhaps unconsciously think they become experts in other areas or perhaps maybe more generously or charitably, congregants or students assume that they're experts in other areas and the rabbi perhaps innocently ends up answering questions in areas where that rabbi simply is not qualified to do so. If I want to put it in negative terms and unfair terms, perhaps I'd say they begin to believe their own PR, that they're geniuses and they have wisdom that transcends their own Torah knowledge. So, is a very important concept, and I think we have to re-emphasize that. So before I ask my question, do you agree that sometimes is a problem in rabbinic circles? Of course, it's sometimes a problem. People practicing outside of their skill zone is not unique to rabbis. So I, I, I you know, as a rabbi over here, I'm going to respond a little. I, this is not a defensive comment, but just sort of frame this. Uh, in theory, you could have a therapist who is trained in couples counseling, but doesn't know the first thing about treating OCD um, and, and will attempt to do so. I'm aware of such situations. You have certified CBT counselors who don't know anything about EMDR. So I, I think it's a mistake to think about this as a rabbi problem. 
even within the realm of rabbinics, there are different rabbis with different experiences and training and scholarship, and people need to know what their qualifications are and stay within their lane. Um, when people come and they ask me complicated questions regarding ribis and these business contracts, maybe one day, but at this time, I don't even attempt to go ahead and pass in such shilas because I just know that they're, they are beyond my pay grade. Like you said, I'm just, I, it's, it's a matter of training experience as the way my brain works. And Baruch Shem, I have, you know, I know where to go when I have those questions. So I don't tell people, you know, I can't help you go, you know, go away. I say, you know, let me try to understand the question best and viability. If I need more information from you, I'll get back to you. Give me a day or two. Let me, let me see what I can find out. And as a rabbi, sometimes it's, I don't want to say it's not necessarily tempting per se, but there are questions, halachic questions that can be dangled right in front of my eyes. And I may think, oh yeah, you know, I, I, I know this, I got this one. I think it's important for people to just know what they're capable of doing. Now, of course, there are rabbis who do not understand that they are really not mental health professionals. I'm sure after listening to our conversation today, of course, everybody will be. <laughs> this will change everything, of course. Will, exactly. But that being said, in my experience. This is the last podcast I'll have to do on this topic because we will have solved it. <laughs> okay. Uh, in my experience, and again, my experience is limited. And again, I, you know. As I said before, I'm putting I'm putting all my credentials, my biases on the table. I am a rabbi, and so therefore I'm going to naturally look to defend my colleagues. I, I really, my experience as rabbis do intuitively know when they need to consult and refer. Uh, I am the director of professional rabbinics at REITs. This is what I do there. And I can only tell you sort of on a training level, we spend a lot of time, a lot of time on these types of issues. Uh, and, and not just in a general way, you know, really we work, work through all, I'd say all, the many of the specific issues um, and really try to process it through the lens of a rabbi, what a rabbi's role is, um, and what it isn't. How does a rabbi know when he's in over his head? Yeah, that was my next question. When is yeah. this above my pay grade? So again, I, I don't know the, I, I can only answer, I can only what I think it should be. I don't know that this is what it is with proper training, experience, and I guess more than anything else, humility, um, a rabbi will know. I said before, therapists have supervisors. And by the way, you should know, even though I mentioned it's only required for therapists who are in training, um, I happen to know Many therapists who are supervisors, uh, forget being supervisors, I, I'm not not appropriate, I'm going to mention them, but some of the most well-known household names of, of mental health professionals within the Orthodox world uh, are themselves in supervision. They know who to go to when they have questions. Rabbis, uh, like all professionals, need to have the same. They need to have a place where they can go and to talk about this. Uh, I'll tell you an idea that I have. I don't think, you know, I've never mentioned it publicly before. So let's see, maybe some people will agree with me. I would love for Schulz to set aside resources for the rabbis to be in therapy. Hmm. All rabbis should be in therapy. I want to say in therapy. I don't necessarily mean that rabbis are you know, struggling with uh, issues of anxiety and depression and, and need marriage counseling. That may be. They're not immune either to that. Of course, of course. I'm, I'm just qualifying my statement. All rabbis need therapy. You know, Some people may not understand what I mean by that. All rabbis need therapy in the sense that the nature of the job is such that it is it is incredibly in, intensive. So many different types of relationships, so many issues and emotions that are constantly coming the rabbi's way. He needs to be able to sort of process that properly. And in supervision, maybe that's a better way to call it than therapy, but I, I think it's really one of the same. A rabbi will be able to talk about these things. And you know, I'm having a really challenging time with, with you know, a case that's come my way. I'm not quite sure how to handle it. You know, supervisor slash rabbi who can, function in, in, in such a way, we'll be able to say to someone, well, you're in way over your head. Don't you see what you're doing? The rabbi say, why do you think that? And so, again, not that he's, you know, trying to, he's, he's not prescribing medication. We're not talking about anything that's criminal, but, you know, I will sometimes say to my colleagues, you're spending way too much time trying to help this couple. They need a therapist. You're spending six, seven hours a week with them. There was a crisis. You helped them manage it. But now it's your job. It's your role to actually Help them move along because this is this is not why your shul hires you to be you know ninety percent of your time with with ten percent of the people even though that's what happens anyway and uh, you know so this I think this sort of a place to sort of check in can be very very helpful uh, to rabbis and I'm just going to say it again I would love to see shuls set aside resources I'm being very clear the way I'm saying it meaning it's not enough for shuls to say rabbi you know we think we think it'd be great for you if you went ahead and you know, saw a therapist, but, you know, just, just, you know, this is something that we're going to provide for you because we know that it's good for you and it's good for us. That's a really good point. And Robbie Rothwax, you mentioned your role as director of professional rabbinics at REITs. 
and that makes me think, and perhaps I'm wrong, and perhaps I'm being unfair in saying this, that it may be very well that what I'm talking about in terms of rabbis not staying in their lane, and as you said, it could be anybody, it could be therapists as well, but it could be that it's less common, and perhaps I'm going out on a limb here, and perhaps I'm being unfair and inaccurate. Perhaps it's less common in the United States, where I'm guessing most rabbis have actual training in a place like Yeshiva University, which includes departments like professional rabbinics, as opposed to perhaps a place like Israel, where when I got my smicha, I got it in Israel. What does it mean to get smicha? You learn yeshiva, you take a test, and you're done. There's no element of professional or practical rabbinics there. Now, it happens to be that I did take some courses outside of that run by Shalvim in order to learn some of those practical ideas, but that was voluntary on my part. No one was forcing me to do that. So it could be that it's a bigger problem here in Israel. Not that I've seen it per se, but I wonder if that's the case. And similarly, I also wonder if it's also a bigger problem among teachers in yeshivot in Israel. I'm talking about some of the post-high school programs, again, which I used to run and for which I have tremendous respect. This isn't a criticism of the programs, but you're dealing with a very specific and vulnerable population of 18, 19, 20-year-olds at a very specific time in their lives. Teachers who are generally not supervised when it comes to talking to the students, the Rosh Hashiva or the dean of the institution, the Menahel, will not necessarily tell them, talk to them about this, don't talk about this, or help them in any way specifically. And I think it sometimes leads in extreme cases to certain teachers perhaps speaking way out of turn and not knowing what they know and not knowing what they don't know, especially, this gets back to one of my points before, that that age, again, 18, 19, 20, those students are prone to hero worship more perhaps than older people would be. And therefore, they see these rabbis as these incredible paragons of virtue and righteousness and wisdom, which they may very well be. It doesn't mean, though, they have training outside their specific area of halacha or pastoral counseling. Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't know if the divide is quite, you know, I, I mean, there's no question that there, there are differences in terms of training from one yeshiva to the next. And obviously, I'm very proud of the of the program we have at Reitz. I can only tell you, I, I went to, you know, YU for smicha and I studied in Reitz and the training that, you know, my students are getting right now, you know, you, you cannot even compare it to what we received then. So some of it is generational. It is my sense that other communities within uh, other yeshivas, I'd say, within the American community that are producing rabbis are slowly but surely um, trying to catch up. You know, David Lichtenstein, he has that uh, Headlines podcast. He interviewed me, I think, about four or five years ago. Uh, and he was, I think he was trying to sort of broadcast to the broader Haredi community, pay attention, see what these see what these guys are doing at YU. Mishpacha Magazine actually featured us, but they, had to, they, they did it in a way that was comfortable for them. I don't think they wanted to make like a front page article. You know, hey, everybody go to Reitz. But, <laughs> but it's really what they were saying. If you read it carefully, they were saying, wow. You know, this this is this is good stuff, and we can all we could all benefit from this. So, w- without a doubt, there's there's a lot of a lot of opportunity over here in the United States and Israel and 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 all over to really uh, focus on these on these areas of of training. Okay, so let's let's flip it now and talk about a patient slash congregant. How would a person who is in crisis or who is having a problem or who simply needs someone to talk to? How should that person decide if he should speak to a rabbi, if he should speak to a therapist, if he should go to a psychiatrist? How does an individual begin the process in trying to figure out what exactly he or she needs? It's it's a good question. Um, So, I mean, it's a little difficult to answer because I think it depends on what he or she needs. So now that I've sort of outlined for you that there are different roles and the relationships are different and the skills that are different. So if someone knows, for example, that they... Uh, you know, they have a, let's say, a, a pre-existing diagnosis of sorts, um, and it's it's flaring up. You know, there's an issue that they had dealt with years ago, uh, but once again, so, I mean, so for example, if a person has struggled on and off with depression, I mean, it's been managed, it's been you know, sort of lying dormant for several years, and now it is starting to express itself in a way that, you know, a person knows intuitively that they need help. There's nothing wrong whatsoever for them going to the rabbi and say, listen, I just want you to know I'm going through a hard time. So if you don't see me around quite as much or, you know, this is what's going on with my life and, you know, we can need a, we need a little financial assistance, it's fine. But, you know, probably that individual knows already that I should be going to my rabbi and saying, you know, can you, quote unquote, treat my depression? Um, and as we've already said, if somebody does make such a request to the rabbi, the rabbi needs to know right from the from the get go. And I think, again, most rabbis do that that's not my role, that's not something that I'm I'm trained to do. Uh, on the other hand, like I said, if a person is having a religious uh, crisis, for lack of a better word, a person is struggling in terms of 
uh, matters of belief in Amuna. Now, could it be that there are underlying emotional issues? Could it be that you know that there is that there are other things that are going on, and that's how expressing itself? Absolutely. And I think all rabbis, I would like to say, are tr- well trained enough to be able to. In other words, all rabbis are going to be sufficiently familiar with mental health concepts and ideas. Again, I'm going back to at least my, my, our students at Reeds know right. the difference between anxiety and depression. You're not, not going to clump the two of those together and say, yes, when a person's in a bad mood. No, that, that, that's not what it is. And anxiety is different than depression, etc. But so I, I think all rabbis have at least the lingo, the vocabulary to be able to, to know that this may be a little complex. I mean, I, I have, uh, as a teenager right now that I've been you know, trying to support as a rabbi for some time now, who's really, really, really struggling in, in areas of davening. And I'd rather not go into the details of it, but it's clear to me that it's a mental health issue. And he is receiving help for that as well. But he 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 can't see it that way. He just sees it as being a religious crisis. So if people don't know where to go, they can go to the rabbi. If they trust the rabbi and say, where should I go? I, I think that, you know, and, and I'm going to be very blunt. Rabbi's not going to charge you, you know, for if, 45 minute consultation. Uh, at least not yet. You know, we'll make right. that the subject of another <laughs> a different that's a different episode. Right. So, in other words, for nothing else, you know, it's a big deal to find a therapist and make an appointment and schedule and have to fill out all the paperwork and sign all the HIPAA forms and go ahead and and, and to spend, you know, what could be in a considerable amount of money just to have a therapist say, you know, oh no, no, you don't need a therapist, you need a rabbi. Go to your rabbi. And hopefully rabbis will rabbi will tell you. I think, you know, I think you need a therapist. And again, it's usually not, I think you need a therapist, please get out of my office, is here's what I can offer you. And here's why I think you would also benefit from working with a therapist. And sometimes the answer is, let's see how it goes. You know, let's see if we can work this out together. Um, and if and if it's not enough, then you'll know, and I'm happy to refer you and give you more direction, that, that you, you'll need something more. I understand that. Sometimes the lines, of course, are not easily drawn whatsoever. Let's take an easy example. Let's say a couple comes together for therapy. And the reason they're coming to therapy is because they have different religious outlooks. Or alternatively, they come to therapy because the laws of Nida, for example, Tarat Mishpacha, are causing problems in their intimate life. That is not so clear whether they're asking for a rabbi or a therapist. I'm not sure either one could clearly say this is clearly a halachic issue or this is clearly a mental health or a therapeutic issue, or at least it seems to me it really depends on the case. It could be very, very complicated. Right. In all likelihood, it's a combination of both, which, as I said earlier, is not a problem. It just means that in, in many cases, rabbis and therapists will consult one with another, obviously with you know proper um, waiver signed. And then we're, we're sort of all on the same page. I will tell you that I have observed firsthand, it's really very fascinating, rabbis who are a lot more, I'll use the term machmir, when it comes to questions of mental health than the therapist will be. And the therapist is a lot more machmir in matters of halacha than the rabbi will be. Because they're both sort of, they're very respectful of their zone. And rabbis are, oh, you have anxiety, you know, then, and, and, and we'll all of a sudden, you know, be very, you know, very generous in terms of in terms of the sort of dispensations that they're recommending. The therapist will say that's not that's not called for. That's not appropriate. And, and there are times again, the therapist will say, "Oh, you know, yeah, you know, Sarvatavis is coming up. You know, you, you know, you absolutely cannot you cannot eat on a on a fast day. You know, Sarvatavis. We know that you know that that's you know fast days in Jewish in Jewish law are extremely 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 uh, extremely important, right? So people, you know, people, and that's why again, consulting. It's coming from a place of respect, very possibly. Absolutely. So being in touch one with another uh, is, a, is a great way to sort of work through you know, what's going on over here. And maybe it is clear that it's one issue or the other, but to the extent that there's sort of some weird combination of the two, we can still work it through everybody just, you know, again, is sort of staying in their lane. Rabbi Rothwax, I want to conclude by asking you just a final question about maintaining that balance for rabbis who may be listening. I have a feeling that, as you said, it could be anybody because therapists also can do things they're not qualified to do and become involved in cases where they really should be referring it to somebody else. But I'm guessing there are more rabbis listening than therapists to this particular, this particular episode in terms of my audience. If you could speak to rabbis out there who are trying to develop that balance but may not be trained, let's say, for example, they didn't go to Reeds, and they may not have the training to know when they have to keep distance, how to balance that relationship and, and the idea of the different roles, et cetera, what would you recommend to them? How would you tell them to develop that if they're already out in the field? This is not someone who's about to become a rabbi. It's somebody who already acts as a rabbi or as a teacher and is already a professional. And they realize that I really need to work on this. What do they do? Right. Okay. So first of all, uh, I do I do not want to, you know, in any way whatsoever, exploit this experience on your on your 
platform and this is commercial for REITs, but only because you said, because they're not Masmachim REITs, I do want to mention, and I think what I'm about to say is correct, that REITs does offer continued rabbinic education courses, which are available, obviously, only to the rabbis. Um, but I don't believe that they're exclusive to REITs Masmachim. So while, you know, if somebody's already out there in the field and, you know, it's too late, you know, he didn't go to REITs Masmachim, that doesn't mean that he can access yeah, some of these resources, and there, there's really there, there are a wealth of resources that are available to rabbis. Frankly, I don't know if all reits musmachim take full advantage of it. So there, there are actually resources that are available through reits, even for people who didn't study in reits, or you know, don't want to study in reits, or now the yeshivas right now, whatever the case may be. That's number one. Number two, there's a lot of great secular literature. Because I was not prepared for this question, I really don't want to make recommendations right here, although I'm happy to follow up with you afterwards and you can share it with your audience and anybody's welcome to reach out to me. Uh, I'm happy to make some suggestions. I know books that I've read that I've really benefited from greatly. I already mentioned, so I'll mention again, Irvin Yalom as a, as a whole series of books as an example of an individual who speaks about his process as a therapist. I can only tell you, I find everything he, that he's saying in there extremely beneficial, uh, even even exclusively thinking about how I can be a better rabbinic counselor. So all of the issues that he touches upon, the definitions may not be the same, the rules may, be, may not be the same, the roles, the relationship, we, we, we touch upon, it's all different, but the, the general principles behind it and how to be an effective uh, listener and to be there for people and how to be just sort of genuine and authentic and help people and, and be empathic. These are universally applicable. And like I said, there's a lot of good literature out there. I, just in conclusion, like I said, I think we should all, all rabbis should have, if the word supervision just sounds too big and maybe a bit intimidating for some of us, like I said, I'm comfortable with it, but it may not work for everyone. And if the term therapy seems too inaccessible, I can't imagine there's a rabbi out there who doesn't realize how beneficial therapy would be. I mean, even even before this, I, I knew because I, I've been in therapy in the past. Like, you know, if I had, if I had all the time and money in the world, I would, I would never have left a therapist's office that that's how beneficial it is and it's no secret that you know ceos you know who have unlimited resources take full advantage of that you know people will spend you know hundreds of dollars to have somebody stand on top of them tell them to do one more push-up and there's no there's no taboo over there you know have somebody you know do essentially the same thing for the mind and the soul so if supervision and therapy sounds too intimidating so you know you got to find the chavrusa so to speak you know somebody that you can comfortably talk to. Uh, I, I would say in addition to one's spouse, you know, having friends and close family members that one can process these things through. But, you know, th there are certain issues that frankly may be, for a whole variety of reasons, maybe just be too complicated and delicate uh, to even discuss the, directly with one's spouse. And having that place to go to sort of think this through and make sure that I'm, like you said, that I'm being effective, I'm being responsible, I'm in my lane, I'm not, God forbid, in a situation where I could be hurting somebody else or potentially myself or other people, you know, just to superimpose in terms of my own life, you know, having that sort of oversight is something to be very, very beneficial. And I can assure whoever it is that's listening, you'll, you'll actually find it very fulfilling. You'll find that you're, you'll, you're much more deliberate, intentional, and thoughtful about what it is that you're doing. You feel just a greater sense of satisfaction and fulfillment. Well, Rabbi Larry Rothwax, this has been really enlightening for me. I learned a lot today, and I think it was a very important episode. I think the things that we discussed have to get out there more commonly. I've spoken with Rabbi Yoni Rosenzweig in the past about the intersection between rabbinic thought and therapy and mental health, and this continues that discussion. I really appreciate your coming on the podcast. I think this is very important, so thank you. Thank you so much. Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Mamanides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. Please like The Orthodox Conundrum Podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, The Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers, and you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop anytime, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? 
Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffee House can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or relax and record and let me do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let me help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, and sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com.